You're listening to 3CR Radio. And Dandy Warhol's there. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, playwright Darby Turnbull joins us. We also chat with music journalist Brian Peel. 3CR. Well, Darby Turnbull is a Melbourne playwright who set up their own production company to showcase their works. And I spoke with Darby this week. It must really empower you creating your own your own theatre production company, Misfit Toys Productions. That must also be very empowering for you as a playwright. Tell us about that journey. I've always been interested in sort of you know developing a uh, you know a collective of artists to sort of do things that we're interested in. Sort of you know identifying you know um, gaps within the performing arts industry. You know things that aren't being talked about or things that we don't feel are being done justice but yeah um i'm really excited sort of you know our official tagline is you know that we're a theatrical collective dedicated to presenting you know new and existing works from the perspectives of the broken bitter disillusioned and the hopeful um so yeah it's really exciting and i'm yeah so I, i figured you know i'd begin with uh these two plays that i'd written um just you know i think um i don't know it's a very different sort of um challenge uh you know, producing your own work. Um, so I think the only person I'm really screwing over is myself if it goes badly. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested to see sort of what can develop from this, you know, what kind of audience we bring in, you know, what kind of fellow artists, you know, are interested in taking part and, you know, what we can create together. You mentioned issues before that people don't want to talk about. What are some of those issues and how do they impact on your work as a playwright? Well, um, I suppose what my uh, sort of, you know, my day role, you know, my main sort of role is I am a um, lived experience peer support worker for a youth uh, mental health service. Uh, So I am very much entrenched in, you know, um, you know, a lot of aspects and a lot of very different people in society. So there are a lot of things that are very close to my heart, you know, namely um, social and community justice um, and connections and all that. So, yeah, I I feel like um, in the performing arts, especially, you know, it has a very limited lens. I mean, uh, I think, you know, inclusive is a word that gets um, thrown out about a lot. But in my experience of going to, you know, the theatre and going to the cinema and reading, I don't see enough of it for my liking. I think it's rather misunderstood. Um, and yeah, I am very, very interested in how to sort of incorporate sort of more, um, more intersectionality and more sort of um, authenticity, you know, in the kinds of works that we present. And I suppose, you know, for me personally, I mean, I have a very sort of, you know, I have my own lens. I come with my own backgrounds. But yeah, I, I guess I'm just writing about things that I'm interested in, and you know, people that I'm interested in, and sort of seeing what comes from there, and sort of, you know doing a slight, um, doing a slight, you know, bend on the kinds of things you usually see. Because really, I I mean, I don't mind saying I'm really a very traditional playwright. I mean, you know, both my plays are just naturalistic two-handers. You know, one's a domestic drama, one's a romantic dramedy. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm... um, I'm really very average, really. I don't know if I'm selling myself particularly well, but yeah, that's who I am. You must see a lot of injustice around gender and how that impacts on mental health. And indeed, I think, you know, themes around gender very much are 
play out in your plays? Yes, I mean, I absolutely do. Um, and just it's a, it's a massive problem within the mental health system, within our community at large. We all know about it, you know. Um, I think we're trying as a collective to get better. But, you know, I think at this, you know, every generation, you know, for us to move forward, like, you know, has to have big conversations about about gender, about gender identity, you know, how your gender sort of, you know, and how your identity sort of affects how you move uh, through the world and how you interact with other people and, like, you know, the various sort of, like, defences you build um, around that. And, you know, it's something that I really try to work on, you know, with every single person I support and work with. I really try to explore with them, you know, what is, you know, affecting them, you know, what it is like to sort of, live in their skin and how it affects, like, you know, how they respond through the world. Because, you know, um, and I, I found, like, a lot of very reasonable reasonable responses get pathologized, you know. Um, you know, and I find that there is a really huge resistance in um, mental health treatment to actually sort of focus on that. So it's like saying, well, someone is, like, you know, hypervigilant or, you know, a word I don't like is paranoid. But I'm going, well you know, this person who is hypervigilant is a young African man who is, you know, saying quite clearly that, you know, he feels afraid because, you know, politicians in the highest standing are saying that people who look like him are dangerous. And, you know, he is being looked at in a certain way or, you know, a young woman who has been um, objectified and, you know, mistreated, you know, physically, sexually, emotionally, you know, is very afraid of that happening again and, you know, um, has built up some certain defences. I'm like, and, and, you know, to to, to which I'd say to that young woman, fair the hell enough, you know. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, and leading on to the the latter part of your question, it's really quite interesting to me that um, with these two plays in particular that I've chosen to write about masculinity and to write about uh, men and different kinds of masculinity, it sort of happened by accident. Um, it just sort of happened to be what these plays sort of morphed into because really I'm um, much more interested in sort of like, you know, from my point of view, I'm always interested in a more like feminine perspective, you know, in my writing. So this is really new for me and exploring a sort of non-toxic masculinity because, you know, um, the things that I sort of explore with, you know, um, the four men, um, over the two plays, you know, things like, you know, grieving the loss of a child, you know, intimate partner violence, you know, one of um, w- uh, one of my uh, male characters, uh, Tam, you know, he, we first meet him when he's terminating a pregnancy, you know, uh, that is just not the kind of thing that is talked about nearly enough for my liking, the fact that, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, non-cisgender men, you know, trans and non-binary men are being excluded from conversations around, you know, bodily autonomy and reproductive rights. So, you know, um, those are just things that I'm thinking about and, you know, experiencing and, um, yeah, and figuring out how they work. And I think if I am going to write about men, um, I want to write about men who are dealing with things, you know, that aren't necessarily being, um, I'm not writing about stoic men. I'm not writing about, men who are go-getters. I'm not writing about men who are like, you know, uh, taking up space necessarily. They're just men as they, as they are. And yeah, I had to have a lot of conversations with myself about how I felt about sort of like, um, even though, you know, one of, one of the men that I've written is a transgender man, you know, and transgender men are like, 
insanely underrepresented underrepresented in like you know the media and literature and all that i had to sort of reckon like how do i feel about you know um using you know two hours of stage time to explore um you know uh you know male issues and like male on we when you know there's so much material out there that already does that so I, i hope i've done that justice and i hope it's you know interesting and compelling to the people who see it and who respond to it and it has been thus far so i'm i'm very very gratified i suppose the first version of your play dad jeans was performed in paran last year director bruce langdon really distanced the actors that must be incredibly handy when you're producing the play in its current format in a pandemic oh yeah i mean i'm so indebted to bruce um for dad jeans because um yeah uh because um play six uh from burnham wood company who um uh, produced Dad Jeans last year. I mean, they produced my one-person show, um, Confessions of a Bipolar Drag Queen, you know, way back in 2012. So um, that was really, that, it was really cool to come back for them, to for them to take a chance. And they sort of assigned Bruce and, you know, I'd never, I, and I, I didn't realise I had met him very briefly um, many years prior, but from our very first meeting, he sat me down and, I, and I'd written a very naturalistic play, you know, with very... Um, specific stage directions you know and um and, and he sat me down we had tea together and he, and, he, and he just sort of looked at me in the face and he goes now how would you feel about cutting all the stage directions i'm seeing a much more sort of abstract space and i went tell me more and he said look um he goes i think you've written um an elegy you know uh, and a requiem and he goes and i'm seeing something much more sort of symbolic so what he did was you know he goes you know i'm not seeing you know them cooking and pouring wine and sort of go he goes i'm not even seeing them touching because um this is a play about you know two men whose um there is a irreparable schism in their relationship so what he did was he created this beautiful imagery and if anyone's interested in watching um uh there was a recording uh on our facebook page on misfit toys but um he just created this beautiful space where the single prop was um which he identified as being important was a pram box so and that was sort of um used to divide uh our two actors uh sean and david um throughout the play and i think they only touched once and it was incredibly compelling and you know um it's what you sort of dream of as a writer or at least i do is that like someone will take your work and do something that you never imagined and will do something completely different and they will make it they will make it theirs because, you know, the way I see sort of like writing is like, you know, once I've finished it and I've submitted it, you know, it's it's no longer mine. You know, it's in this case, it's only a quarter mine. You know, a quarter belongs to uh, the director and two quarters belong to the actors. So that that was really thrilling to me. And like when it finally came time for me to see it, it was amazing because, you know, I wasn't just focusing on my words. I was focusing on, you know, um what Bruce, the director, had created and what Sean and David had created. And it was something sort of beyond what I could have dreamed or, like, had ambition for, like, with this production. So that was really exciting. And and that was really um, – and, you know, the response from the audience and the response from the creatives was um, was so positive and so validating. And I went, okay, well, I, and I realised, you know what, I'm not done with this piece yet. I need to go go back and, like, you know, write a full-length play and sort of see how that works. And thankfully it did. Your first production about the drag queen sounds absolutely fascinating. Tell us about that. Well, <laughs> well, I was 17 um, and it was a media production. Uh, it was a short film that I made. Um, so uh, back then I was reckoning with um, my own sort of like 
very severe mental health problems and also my gender identity. So I sort of decided to write a uh, a monologue about a young person who, um, you know, is reckoning with um, their gender and their mental illness and they have decided that this will be um, – that they will end their life. And it's about them justifying to themselves and the audience why they're going to end their life and about their right to end their life. And, you know, it was about a reclamation of self when, you know, um, you know, because uh, what, what I felt at that time about my mental illness was like um, that, my, that my life had been stolen from me, my identity had been stolen from me and, you know, not being able to sort of, um, not being able to be in a way that I wanted to, wanted to be and like so yeah it was it was about me working out a lot and obviously my my feelings about you know my own gender and my own mental illness have like sort of developed considerably over the last eight years but that's what it was about right then it was so raw and it it was so it was very green as well I mean I don't have any illusions that it was particularly like revolutionary at the time but it was quite cathartic in a way and like um there was some interesting stuff in there and you know I may come back to it at some point but yeah it was um it was really fun and I got good marks for it in school and I got a good response for it the year after when I brought it to the company. And like, honestly, it was very like, um, very sporting of them to have this like, you know, very precocious 18 year old come in with this piece and just sort of say, hi, you know, do you want to put, do you want to like, and to let me take it to the stage? And, you know, um, my, um, my director, um, Alexandra was, you know, a uh, really incredible part of that. And she really nurtured me to, you know, make rewrites and, uh, brought a really great performance out of me. So I'm really indebted to her as well. Like, you know, again, I, I sort of see it as half hers as well because, you know, she was so integral to that. So yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. It was fun. So I'm like, I don't want to be a fabulous drag queen. I want to be the saddest, most self-destructive drag queen you've ever seen in your life. Like, um, like real drag queens. Um, well, <laughs> sorry, that's probably not very accurate, but yeah. <laughs> I've had the absolute pleasure of interviewing the two actors in your production early days, Law Burns and Bradley Storer. You clearly must have a strong sense of empathy with your characters. Certainly, I get that sense in your creation of them. You must have just, you know, breathed a sigh of relief and, and kind of gone to yourself, that's them, when you met those two actors and, and cast them in early days. Um, yeah, it was really incredible because Law... Um... Uh, came to the production um, first because uh, as an actor, I'm primarily an actor. As an actor myself, I hate auditions. And I don't think, you know, anyone ever gives their best in an audition or rather the creative team, I believe, could do more to get more out of someone in an audition. I mean, the best auditions I've come in are the ones that feel like a workshop. So, But it was really important to me that the character of Tam, who is a young um, transgender man, um, was cast correctly and I was sort of foreseeing you know um putting out a casting call for this character and like not getting anyone not getting anyone getting anyone who was um appropriate for the role um and at that time uh, as I just begun to write the play I was only two scenes in I was doing a really fantastic uh project called No Return which was um tales from uh, Melbourne's trans and gender diverse uh community so there were four of us you know four of us from the trans community uh, doing these monologues, and uh, Brooke Murray, who cu- curated that, um, is actually directing uh, Early Days and Law, and that's how I met Law, and um, and we really hit it off, sort of, you know, right away. We had a lot in common, and um, and their piece that they did for No Return was just so incredible. It was really life changing for me to see, actually, um, 
And we were talking, we were just talking about writing and, you know, what projects we were doing. And I just sort of impulsively said, look, I'm writing this project, mate. Do you want to do it? And um, they said yes. And it, it was kind of great because, you know, once they said yes, I started writing the character with them in mind. Like, for example, this character now had a voice. I knew what the character looked like. Um, and I knew that Law uh, – and I was originally writing quite a caustic, very um, – uh, very brittle character who I was um, I was very interested in writing a character who wasn't necessarily quote unquote like sympathetic someone who was harder to sort of um, relate to someone who was deeply complex and because I knew that law just radiates warmth and charisma and um, and empathy like that way the character like uh, I was I knew that the audience would see the character as I wanted them to see them, that they wouldn't just dismiss this character out of hand. They would sort of say, no, no, this is someone who is really sort of, um, who is a like a, a genuine person, who is a kind person, but who has defences that they need to put up um, in order to get through their life and to get through their relationships. And actually the character became like a lot more sort of, um, a lot more complex because I knew that I was writing for law. And um, with... Um, the character of Marcus, who Bradley is now playing, we did actually have auditions. We saw uh, ten brilliant actors. Like it was horror. It was, it was brilliant, but it was horrible because like we had ten actors come in, all of whom were equally good, all of whom had like completely uh, different interpretations of that character, and all brought something really beautiful. And um, it was really hard for us, and it was really hard for me because I, I I wasn't making the final decision. Brooke was going to make the final decision, and I was kind of relieved that I wouldn't have to make that call because I was just, yeah, really overwhelmed. But um, Bradley, uh, Bradley brought something so different. You know, he brought he brought a softness and he brought a sense of humor. And he, because like again, Marcus is a very, very vulnerable character. And Bradley and Law's chemistry was really beautiful as well. Like, and but also it was something that was very recognizably queer. And, you know, Bradley was like, yeah, like he brought an essence of a lot of queer men that I know and who I relate to. And he was just so comfortably queer as well, because you don't often see that even with queer queer actors. Like you see a lot of queer actors who aren't comfortable performing queerness or don't know how to perform queerness because of like their own things, but he didn't have that. And it was really beautiful because, and I, and I think Brooke was, you know, in their genius, like, was like going, these two actors are bringing something different and they're bringing something unique and they're bringing something that people won't ne- haven't necessarily seen, won't necessarily have seen before. And that, you know, excited both them and me. And, you know, honestly, um, seeing them both in rehearsals, I just, my main sort of thing is I, I just can't wait for people to see, you know, these two phenomenal artists just kill this material. So, you know, yeah. How would you describe the way in which Bradley Storer is able to depict his queerness as an actor? There, He does it all in his eyes. He's got, um, mainly because I haven't seen him like in person, but like he has a way of like making very sort of like vulnerable, very sad lines funny. He knows how to crack a joke out of something tragic. He knows how to sort of like um, to move through a scene 
like he may need to defend himself at any moment. And that is something I really relate to, you know, as a queer person as well, that feeling of sort of like, you know, when you sort of go through the world feeling like you're not safe and like knowing that your safety is going to be compromised, you have to build certain defenses and you have to build certain ways. And like, not many people can do that. And like, you know, but also there was something so vulnerable about him. There, There is this, this yearning to be, to be loved and to be nurtured and to be like cherished, but also not feeling like you can, but also not feeling like you've earned it. And that was a character that I wrote. Like it was a character, I wrote a character who um, for a myriad of reasons, you know, he's literally just gotten out of an abusive relationship with another man and, you know, is now with this other wonderful man who has decided to, who has elected to, not share certain parts of himself to protect himself, but in doing that is hurting his partner. And like, yeah. And there was just something very sort of just, you just want to give him a hug and like, and this character does things, you know, which are going to cause, you know, a lot of debate amongst our audiences. If I've done my job right. And I, and I hope they do, but like, you just feel so intensely for him. And, um, yeah, and it's the same with Law as well. I mean, Law just has like this, this, oh God, it, it's a, it almost doesn't bear description in a way. It's just this presence that is fascinating and and just makes you want to watch them. And the fact that they both have this essence about them just, I think, makes for some truly spectacular theatre. And like, especially in the space that we're, we're going to be in, like, you know, the audience will be able to see the way that they move, like, their eyelids and the way that they move their mouths and the way that they move their cheekbones. You know, law can act from their cheekbones. They're that good. Um, so, like, yeah. Um, they both have just this incredible gift of, like, really subtle nuance that, you know, can take a person on an emotional journey, like, even when they're not saying the lines or in the way that they say the lines. And I think, isn't that just what you want whenever you go to the theatre? Like, you like, you know, to see an actor who is an artist and who can create something from the ground up. So, yeah, I hope I've answered your question. Um. You certainly have. And, of course, Early Days and Dad's Jeans will be performed in February. You do have fundraising going on uh, for the productions. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, well, we currently have a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, if people are interested, um, uh, the Kickstarter is... Um, uh, you know, Misfit Toys under Misfit Toys, um, early days and dad jeans. Um, so it's just uh, helping us uh, cover some of the costs of the production because we are a profit share production. So um, any any and all profits that we make will go straight, uh, will be equitably um, distributed amongst the team. Um, so yeah, um, we're doing well. We're currently sitting at 36%. So if any um, generous listeners would be interested, uh, we have three weeks to go. Um, but uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited. Like we're doing it at the Motley Bauhaus in um, uh, North Fitzroy. Uh, so I don't know if people are familiar. It's a really wonderful space run by Jason Cavanna. They have a recording studio. They have an art gallery. Uh, I did a production there last year and, you know, um, it was definitely in the back of my mind, you know, when I started writing these plays that I thought that would be a great space. And thankfully they said yes. Uh, so yeah, we'll be doing that from the 23rd to the 27th of February uh, next year, COVID permitting, unless we have another outbreak. Um, uh, so yeah. Darby Turnbull, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you on 3CR. I really love your work as a playwright. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 3CR.
If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry, and depression, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends, and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR.
Knight was Nina Simone with Cherish. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Brian Peel is a music journalist and the publisher of the Aussie Word, and I chatted with him recently. Hello. Thanks, James. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Tell us about the Aussie Word. Well, the Aussie Word, the Aussie Word started as a little bit of a, a hobby quite a few years ago. Actually, 2010 was when that sort of took off for me. And it was just started as a blog spot. I don't know. Do you remember blog spots back then, James? <laughs> it was it was kind of like the years of when we had sort of MySpaces as well. But it was a blog spot and it just became a place where I used to just drop, you know, some of my favorite videos, some of my favorite artists. Uh, I used to just cover, you know, just some topics that took interest to me. And from that point, you know, someone said to me, why don't you just, you know, look at purchasing a domain and buying a domain name. And it was all sort of new groundbreaking stuff for me because I've not sort of been caught up in that realm of, of IT, but it was took a little bit of learning, but it was good to, to uh, take, you know, a look around and see how that all comes together. And the Aussie word became the Aussie word.com. And the, the meaning behind that is it's like, the Aussie, 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 obviously representing Australia, and Word uh, representing the the written form of Word in an online capacity. So there it is. It's the AussieWord.com. But um, in the ten years, it was kind of uh, I don't know how do you explain it. it. Just became a hobby that ended up becoming a an out of control monster. And then slowly, slowly, we had did a few interviews. Uh, then sort of just taking a turn to to do some radio work and and. Uh, help out a couple of friends on on community radio, so I was sort of encompassing those podcasts, and eventually it's it's now become a you know quite a quite an established platform, which is still true to me putting you know the famous you know artists that are well known around the world, plus all our local, uh, international, and uh, you know, independent acts uh, from Australia as well. So it's still true to its being my favourite things rather than it being what the world wants but it's just a little topic that's now grown and I'm loving it yeah so there's that's how the Aussie word was born and it's it's still going James I'm loving it (laughs) you've been publishing some great articles lately tell us about some of them we've got oh so a lot of that music or new music content is really where uh, a lot of the interests lie uh, from from people who follow the interactions on social media so it's it is linked in with with my Facebook my Instagram and um, also my Twitter page, which you'd probably know more so, James. We love a bit of a tweet, a little bit of tweet action, don't we? Absolutely. <laughs> so the uh, posts usually get shared on, on social media. But as far as uh, content-wise, uh, only up until yesterday and over the last week or two weeks, there's been quite a few uh, interviews surfacing, a uh, in, lot of local acts in the uh, music scene. And a couple of international ones, uh, internationally, an artist by the name of Trevor Blake, who I did an interview with uh, just the other day, who's from uh, overseas, as well as uh, Opal Ocean is also a uh, pop rock uh, duo from overseas as well. And then we've got some local talent as well, uh, Jake Bosky and uh, Nick Kingswell, who's also a Australian guy living abroad in the UK, who's also got some brand new material. So we like supporting the Australian acts, but then we've got um, an array of other talents, such as Nina Borma. We've got Abby J. Hall. Uh, Peter Katz is an extremely talented pop, indie pop singer, who's one of my favourites around at the moment. And then you've got the really cool cat. He's a, 
a real little bit of a rock god. Uh, his name is Low Cut Connie, who's from New York City. So there's some really good content uh, on there, which is always moving. It's always revolving. And if that's not your cup of tea, then maybe a podcast is. So there are a couple of podcasts which will start uh, coming back into the forefront. We've got a uh, couple of radio programs that I sort of do on the side of this as well, which are sitting in the uh, podcasting tab as well. So I'm, I'm enjoying updating this page over the last few weeks. Thank you to COVID-19. It's given me a bit of extra time to put into it and it's had a little bit of a refreshed image as well. So it's looking really pretty. So I'm pretty impressed by it. You've done so many great interviews over the years in both print and on air. What's the most thrilling one for you, Ben? Oh, boy. I'm going to have to go back like 10 years <laughs> and think about that one. I think it's, it is it is a tricky one, though, because I've, I've been lucky enough to work in a couple of different media platforms, obviously working online with the Aussie Word is it, take, it puts a real different spin on on interviews, doing them in the written form and in the online platform. But I think radio, as you can also appreciate, James, is that you know you really find that it it sort of takes you on a different journey. So, luckily for me, I've been really lucky and privileged and honoured to be able to to cross my website over with some of the radio interviews that I do. So, I'm really enjoying the local content, but it's a bit hard to sort of pick a favourite one. I mean, I've be, I've been lucky enough to sort of cover, you know, big events as well, the ARIA Awards, uh, TV Week Logie Awards, and, you know, have the opportunity to sort of cross, cross paths with some, you know, popular names in the Australian entertainment industry as well. So I think I'm just looking at my little wall here in my home studio and I'm looking at, I'm looking at Tanya Doko from Bachelor Girl. I'm also looking at uh, Delta Goodrum, Lee Kernigan. I'm also looking at the cast of Neighbours. I've uh, picture with Molly Meldrum, Danny Minogue, Martika. So there's quite a few big names in there. So it's really hard to pick, but they're up on my little wall of fame in here as well. So I've got to give them a little shout out. <laughs> so Brian, were you one of those kids and one of those teenagers that was always buying CD singles in the 90s? Yes, absolutely. And before that, I'm not, um, probably don't want to give away my age, but all right, I'm 42. So if you go back 42 years, I was probably standing out the side of what a, a, a little shop called Brashes back in the time, and they're, they're no longer in existence, unfortunately. But you can uh, go into Brashes and pick up a, a, a vinyl record. And when Casingles came out, I was in, in line with my pocket money. So mum and dad would sort of hide away a few coins and I'd tie it up in a little knot in my little handkerchief when I went to primary school like a good little boy and used to save that up. So instead of, you know, buying 20 cents of mixed lollies at the canteen, I'd actually put in a money box when I got home because I knew that Tina Arena had a new song coming out, which I heard on one of those top 40 uh, radio shows thanks to the great man Barry Bissell. And I'd actually head down to, what, Kmart or, you know, Target back then as well who used to sell the cast singles and pick up a you know, a couple of cassettes. So they were back in the time. And then when CDs came out, oh boy, I was just beside myself. I didn't know where to start. Like just, you know, there was compilations and I can't think of really the first CD that I bought, but it was it would have been in the time of 90, 91-ish. Um, but back then, 
there was so many so many big names in the scene. But yeah, it's hard to pick. Definitely hard to pick. <laughs> so, what were some of those early concerts that you went to when you were a teenager? I didn't get to too many concerts. Um, I was lucky enough to go see. Oh boy, who was it? Uh, would have been in late 1990s. Uh, I can't think who the first one was. I've been to a couple. Um, probably, I think John Farnham probably was one of the first that I did get to go to with a bunch of adults. And then I did the grown-up thing and uh, went to see Savage Garden all by myself, had my pea plates and drove down to the what was known as the tennis centre back then. So seeing Savage Garden in all their glory, like that was just like at another level. So I'm a big Darren Hayes fan. And I think from there it was, you know, Kylie has obviously featured predominantly. Well, she features in almost everything that I do, to be quite honest with you all. But uh, Kylie's concert light years and the big one at uh mcg the big mushroom gig where all of the mushroom acts came together and put on a massive uh, massive massive show at the mcg so it was quite nice to go with my high school friends and uh catch the shows but it's nice now you know you can catch anyone you want pretty much on any platform online uh via zoom i think covid's really changed the the direction of of how we interact with our artists and how we can enjoy their music so um yeah i think it's probably still good that we do keep supporting them that's for sure and of course it sounds like you're really being rebooted recharged in recent weeks uh both with your podcast and certainly with your writing uh musically but it sounds like you also have had a bit of a hiatus during covid as well what's kind of kick-started you in recent weeks i've been really i've been quietly hiding in the background just doing those little mundane jobs that I've been putting off for quite a while. And unlike some people, you know, COVID has had a negative impact on their lives, whereas with me it's it's really given me the opportunity to, to clean up a few things and just, you know, sit down with pen and paper uh, and just work out, okay, where to next? I'll work out some priorities. It's really uh, forced me into start aligning how and what and where I want to go. So I wanted to keep my hand in doing interviews and I had done uh, a couple of interviews on Instagram. So Instagram Live was one of those platforms where I could, you know, jump on with an artist and do one of those live chit-chat things for, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour, which was really good. But it was also an opportunity to to go into the Aussie word and and you know, revive the templates and the the website. Give it a refresh and uh, put out you know some of those interviews that I've been you know putting on hold for a little while. So uh, it's been good. But in just looking at the opportunities that you know the restrictions have put on us, we've still had the ability to to reach out some, to some acts and and not only do the written interviews but do these online interviews. So uh, a couple of radio stations, and I know. Uh, you guys at 3CR, um, the team where I'm at, at at Melton at 979FM and also at Joy 94.9, they've also been doing a lot of remote recording and pre-recording. So community radio um, has continued to to deliver, um, you know, information and, um, you know, providing what they can for their communities. So I think just really having the time to to listen to some of these programs and, 
and see what's on offer and carry on my love for music, it's, I started thinking, okay, maybe it's time that I sort of come back. But at the same time, you know, questions were always asked, what are you doing, Brian? We haven't heard you in the mornings or in the afternoons and what are you up to? And I'm like, well, at the end of the day, I'm really not essential. I'm not an essential service like, you know, our doctors and nurses and I'm, I'm quite happy to take a break and it was probably good timing uh, to do that and, and just recharge and start thinking about, you know, what the comeback is going to look like. Brian Peel, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR. It's been a pleasure. Nice talking to you, James. Great program. when I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. 
I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter.
Aretha Franklin, Midnight Train to Georgia. We also had Custard in there as well. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. Taking us as Sarah McLaughlin with Fear. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
Listening to 3CR Radio. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 